You're listening to Rates and Lanes with Rico Mohammed. This is the show where we improve your knowledge of the freight market, improve your bottom line, and improve the transportation industry as a whole. We're talking Rates and Lanes. Let's move on down the audio road. Good evening, everyone. Coming to you live from Atlanta, Georgia. This is Rico Mohammed, and this is the Rates and Lanes podcast. We want to thank you guys for your support this week. We apologize for the mishaps that we had last week. Uh, things come up in this business, as we all know, and we're trying to work this thing right now. We're just a one-man army, so everything that happens, we have to fall back on our shoulders, and we have to move and take care of business. But that was last week, and now today, it, this is a new day, and we have uh, another opportunity to try to bring it back to you. We get a mulligan, a do-over. So Mr. Seaton will be joining us again tonight. So if you have any questions, go ahead and press number one. Get into the call screen of queue so we can get your questions answered. Um, but with no further ado, let's go jump right directly into this week's USDA truck rate report, the fruit and vegetable report published by the USDA. This week, there is only one market that is showing a slight shortage. Of course, we try to give you this information so that you can figure out where might be a potentially good area to put your trucks if you have the ability to dispatch yourself and get your own loads. And the only place right now that is showing a surplus, I mean, excuse me, is a, a shortage of trucks is southern New Mexico. Southern New Mexico is showing a shortage of trucks. So southern New Mexico might be a hot spot to try to get your reefers, your vans, or flatbeds to pull some freight out there and, and possibly try to generate a really decent rate. You got Three other markets in the country that are showing slight shortages, which might provide some opportunity, and those markets are Central San Joaquin Valley, California, San Luis Valley, Colorado, and Eastern North Carolina. Those are the three markets that are showing a slight shortage. Every other market in the United States, according to the USDA truck rate report, is reporting adequate truck supplies. So everywhere else is showing adequate truck supplies. Uh, if you go to the Facebook page on the Rates and Lanes with Rico Muhammad on Facebook, go to the Facebook page. We have a link attached where you can go and uh, click and see this report directly for yourself. Going in directly now, moving on to the DAT trend lines for June 14th through 20th, uh, national average rates declined two cents per mile last week for vans and one cent for reefers and flatbeds. The rates in June remain well above averages for May. So let's jump into each specific. And we're going to move on over to van and demand capacity for the 14th through the 20th. Van load posting declined 13% and truck posting increased 3.2% last week, driving the load to, load to truck ratio down another 15% to 2.0 loads per truck. Van rates responded by declining two cents per mile. May capacity tightens by seven percent. Load availability declined seventeen percent in May, and capacity tightened seven percent compared to April for an eleven percent decline in the load to truck ratio compared to May of twenty fourteen. The ratio fell twelve percent from two point nine to two point five. Let's look and see what the van rates performance was last week. And the national rate for vans declined two cents to a dollar eighty-eight per mile last week. The average, <clears throat> the first change since a five cents increase in the first week of June, 
rates are trending up in Columbus and in parts of California. Uh, rates dipped one cent in May. The average van rate for, for the month of May fell one cent compared to April, but rates have held steady between $1.85 and $1.86 throughout both months. The total rate was down 13 cents compared to May of 2014 due to a 20% drop in the fuel surcharge. Quickly checking in around the country, we have Philadelphia reporting an average coming out of the Northeast at $1.72 per mile. Atlanta, Georgia is coming in second place for the highest rate out of the country. The Southeastern representative showing $2.14 per mile. Chicago, Illinois checks in representing the Midwest showing $1.92 per mile on average. Dallas, Texas checks in showing $1.85 per mile on average, which is the South Central Regional Representative. Los Angeles, California checks in showing an average of $2.15 per mile for dry vans, which sets the high water mark for dry vans this week. Moving on over to U.S. flatbed demand. Flatbed load availability dropped 13% last week and truck capacity added 13%. The load-to-truck ratio declined 23% as a result from 26.7 to 20.6 loads per truck, which still indicates strong demands for flatbeds. Load volume for flatbeds fell percent in May, while capacity was down 1.3% compared to April. The resulting load-to-truck ratio fell 1.8% compared to May of 2014. The ratio declined 43%. Taking a quick look around the country as far as the rates are concerned, national average rate for flatbeds dipped one cent last week to $2.19 per mile. Flatbed demand and rates remain strong despite the slight decline in the second half of June. Flatbed rates increased one cent in May compared to April. The total rate of $2.18 per mile was 17 cents below the national average for May of 2014 because of a 21 cents drop in the fuel, in the average fuel surcharge year over year. Coming out of the northeastern corridor, the high water marks for flatbeds comes in out of Harrisburg, showing $3.48 per mile on average. Atlanta, Georgia checks in south central region. Uh, the southeastern part of the United States shows $2.65 per mile on average. Rock Island, Illinois is showing an average of $2.71 per mile coming out of the Midwest. Houston, Texas is the south central regional uh, representative showing $2.24 per mile. And Phoenix, Arizona is the West Coast representative showing a rate of $1.91 per mile on average coming out of the West Coast. And moving on over to the U.S. reefer, uh, national reefer rates for June 14th through the 20th. I'm sorry, I don't want to get into rates just yet. Let's go into the demand portion for reefers. Then we'll jump back over into the rates. Demand for reefers slipped another 5.4% last week and capacity added 2.6%, leading to a 7.8% decline in the national average load-to-truck ratio. The ratio fell, 5 .5, fell from 5.5 to 5.0 loads per truck. 
reefer load availability declined 4.5% in May, but capacity also declined 1.7% compared to April. The load-to-truck ratio slipped 2.8% from 6.1 to 5.9 compared to the unusually high demand of May 2014. The ratio fell 28%. Now we'll move on over and look at what the U.S. reefer rates were doing for the week of the 14th through the 20th. And the national average rate for reefers dipped one cent last week, the first change since reefer rates rose four cents in the first week of June. Reefer rates continue to plummet in the southern Florida, in, in southern Florida, but rates are on the rise in key California markets in Dallas and in Chicago. So there's a little bit of a nugget for some of you reefer heads out there. Uh, reefer rates up seven cents in May. Reefer rates jumped up seven cents in May compared to the April average of two dollars and twelve cents. Compared to a May 2014 national average fuel fuel surcharge fell 19 cents and the line haul rate rose 5 cents or 14 cents decline in the total rate year over year. So quickly checking in across the country, starting out in the northeastern corridor, the average coming out of Elizabeth, New Jersey shows $1.88 per mile on average. Southeastern representative comes out of Lakeland, Florida, just to give an indication on how rates are dropping in Florida. The average rate coming out of Lakeland, Florida right now is $1.82, which is the southeastern representative on the, on the chart that we're currently looking at. And the Midwest representative sets the high water mark for reefers coming out of Green Bay, Wisconsin, showing a rate of $2.72 per mile on average coming out of Green Bay, Wisconsin. McAllen, Texas, the south-central regional representative shows an, an average rate of a $1.98 per mile on average coming out of South Central portion of the United States. In Fresno, California, coming in second place right behind Green Bay, Wisconsin, showing an average rate coming out of the West Coast at $2.34 per mile on average. And that, ladies and gentlemen, wraps up this week's DAT Trend Lines report. And with no further ado, we don't want to take up any more time and belabor the point. We want to try and get to our special guest, Mr. Hank Seaton, and get him on board and check in with him. Hank, are you there? I am here. Good evening, Rico. Good evening, Hank. Thanks for taking the time to join us again this weekend. Um, quickly checking in with you. I know you keep your ear to the ground and, and uh, finger to the post on what's going on uh, as far as uh, what, may, what may be coming out of uh, Washington, D.C. Anything, is there some, some news that you can give to us to kind of help uh, maybe prick our consciousness a little bit about what we need to be taking a look at coming down the pipe? Well, uh, I think we're going to be in for a busy fall on the Hill. Uh, it looks like the highway bill, uh, again, a highway bill of any substance is uh, pretty much a dead issue. They can't figure out how to fund it. Uh, there will probably be another interim bill. Uh, you and I had mentioned before uh, we got on tonight that Congress is pushing the uh, agency to come on down with an ELD and a, uh, a speed uh, uh, limiter rule uh, that was on the agency's agenda anyway. That's something that uh, both the safety conscience and the large carriers support. I imagine we will get a... Uh, a final rule sometime this year, but there'll be an implementation period of a couple of years 
the more controversial issues such as taking down SMS methodology. Uh, I think it's in limbo now whether or not uh, that uh, will uh, get passed this year. It was uh, going to be attached to the highway bill, so the bigger issue of the highway bill probably will uh, subsume that. And I think everybody knows uh, the uh, two consecutive overnight periods for the restart is on hiatus. Uh, uh, Congress has straightened up uh, the legislation so that the hiatus will continue until the, the report's in and something's done about it in the future. Uh, there's a grousing over uh, the, the doing of the report, the way it's being done and what the outcome is. But that, that is another issue that is uh, uh, just pending. I think probably the most amazing thing is after... Uh, um, from 2007 to now, after eight years, the agency has finally submitted to OMB, apparently, a new safety fitness determination. Uh, OMB will be looking at that for 90 days, but expect now, maybe sometime in the fall, that we'll finally get a rulemaking uh, to look at how the agency proposes to use SMS methodology to uh, qualify carriers. About all we know about that ultimate rule is that it will use uh, SMS roadside inspections in some sense to come up with the, at least a preliminary safety fitness determination. Uh, probably will not be percentile rankings uh, because that's so much criticized, but I think we can expect that it will have some of the same deficiencies that are already out here, such as the law of large numbers and the fact that uh, it's uh, very difficult to rate a small carrier and one bad bus to send him over the moon. Uh, also, the fact that uh, they can't uh, determine preventability of crashes and crashes, one of the major indicators of safety, fitness. And finally, uh, how are they going to each month publish a list of people's safety ratings at the same time? give them due process, due process being the ability of a carrier to uh, uh, appeal whatever the, uh, the the safety rating is. Currently, that appeals process takes about 60 to 90 days and uh, means that things like preventability are examined. So uh, all of those kinds of things will uh, uh, come out once the rulemaking is released and I'm sure on future shows we'll be figure out what in the world the agency's doing in that regard. So, on that happy note, to that we'll let you know that uh, Washington's spinning its wheels and uh, we're going to get somewhere in the ball. Someone sent me a note here and wanted me to ask this question to you as well. It, we're talking about along the lines of, of uh, government um, uh, government regulation. They wanted to ask a question about. Do you know of anything of, or whatever happened to uh, the regulation where they was talking about maybe starting trying to uh, hold some shippers accountable with the uh, hours of service when it comes to um, with the uh, tension issues and things of that nature? Yeah, there's nothing in that rule that will help uh, the motor carrier industry get mandatory detention. Uh, Going back 30 years, uh, there used to be mandatory detention that if the, uh, a truckload carrier wasn't unloaded in two hours, he, he had to be paid. 
there's nothing in the thought of getting shippers and brokers uh, involved in the regulatory process, which would lead to uh, actually getting us some compensation. But uh, there was a notice of proposed rulemaking, which I think you know, is going to soon be finalized, that basically will uh, be somewhat like the lumper uh, regulation, which says that uh, a shipper cannot uh, require or permit a uh, motor carrier to pay a lumper except these rules uh, will say that a, a shipper and a broker cannot require, permit, aid, or abet a motor carrier in exceeding the hours of service. Which uh, will play out this way. The uh, shipper who says, uh, uh, look, Charlie, uh, this has got to be there at 9 o'clock in the morning. And Charlie says, the boss, I don't have the hours and... The shipper says, well, turn down the load then, uh, turning, telling him that he's got to turn down the load if he can't make an 8 a.m. appointment after he's at the dock could be considered to be uh, uh, requiring or permitting him to exceed the hours of service could result in the shipper being fined as much as, I think, $10,000 per violation. And uh, there's going to be a procedure in the act that would let the shipper say, that's fine, Mr. Shipper. If I pull away from the dock, I'm going to turn you in or requiring or permitting. So uh, I think it's a sleeper bill for shippers and brokers. I don't think they understand uh, uh, the the possible effect. And uh, I think once it's implemented, uh, a lot of this uh, uh, traditional problem we've had in the truckload business where uh, the shippers have uh, had their inventory on wheels, and instead, uh, you get there just in time, or if you shut down the plant, you're going to pay for it. It's going to be over. Shippers will be held accountable for uh, those kind of shenanigans. So, uh, it once it percolates through the system, I, I hope particularly with people that are hauling produce and some of the way that the uh, the grocery house industry has acted in the past will be uh, alleviated and we'll all get back to a much more a reasonable and practical dispatch that won't, uh, in a way, force us to uh, uh, to drive hot to, to make appointments. Uh, obviously, it's, uh, it's it's been an abuse, and uh, in that regard, I think, you know, most carriers are, think that the, the shippers should be throttled and the, these regulations will do that. Okay, okay. Well, I'm going to get right back into the calls here. got uh, Bruce here wants to get a question in about speed, the speed limit rule. So let's see if I can get Bruce on board with us. Bruce, are you there? Yes, I am, Rico. How are you this evening? Oh, well, 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 Bruce. Good. Good evening, Mr. Sitton. The questions I have are both relating to the speed limiter proposal. Number one, the states have always been the ones who have to pass legislation to implement and enforce a speed limiter, a speed limit of any kind. How is the federal government going to coerce all 50 into actually enforcing this rule? And secondly, my second part of the question is, Saying, let's just use the arbitrary 65-mile-an-hour speed limiter, if that's what they set it at. There are many mountain grades in different parts of the country 
that I can descend in excess of 65 mile an hour safely. Am I going to be permitted to go above the speed limit as long as I'm, my truck is limited, or will 65 be the actual speed limit for trucks and that there will be trucks going down hills at 65 mile an hour riding their brakes to stay at that speed when they could easily descend the hill at the 70 or 75, 80 mile an hour speed that is posted for the rest of the vehicles? Well, you asked you asked two very good questions. Uh, I, uh, some of my answers may be just largely supposition, but let's work our way through it. Uh, first of all, you are right that uh, uh, the states can set their own speed maximum speed limit currently, as we know. Uh, uh, there is no uniform speed limit law. Uh, that is... Uh, part of uh, a federal preemption statute that says that the states have a carve-out from otherwise prohibitive actions to set speed But by the same token, there's something called mix-up, which says that the state enforcement officials uh, have to uh, uh, enforce uh, uh, uniform federal uh, regulations if passed in order to get their money, because... Uh, uh, a lot of the investigation money, a lot of the inspection money, and all of that is a flow down from the feds. So if the federal government wants to pass a uniform speed limit, they could. But I don't think the speed limiter comes in as a speed limit, although it certainly has that effect. I think that uh, the speed limit and, and, you know, somebody who's more uh, mechanically inclined than I do will... Uh, well, no, but I think I think it uh, governs the uh, the RPMs uh, that uh, that the truck can go to exceed a certain national standard, and if that standard is set at miles an hour or whatever it is, that would uh, I guess cap the performance of your truck, notwithstanding the fact that the speed limit was greater. Now, you, you, somebody on the line will have to help me with this because I had never. Consider the fact that going downhill, uh, you obviously can go quicker. I, does a does a speed limiter function kind of like a jake brake and keep you from rolling quicker, or does it just keep the the truck from exceeding the RPMs uh, to exceed the speed limit on flatter uphill grade? Well, well, my truck. Answer the question. Okay, my, 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 in my truck, I can set a maximum speed that the engine can, or that the truck can move in any gear. In other words, if 68 mile an hour, it would be the standard. It could be set that that's as fast as I could propel the truck down the road, but that doesn't limit the truck from going above that if it's in a gravity situation yeah. where, you know, where the truck is just, it's going to go faster unless I stand on the brakes or engage the jake brake or both. Yeah, well, you know, I think I think what you said is is, is probably what I suspected that if you were on eighty one and it was clear a clear downhill grade, there's nobody ahead of you, and you wanted to uh, to uh, slip out of gear, you you and gravity could get you to keep up with traffic at eighty miles an hour. Uh, it, it may very well be the speed limiter rule wouldn't keep you from going that fast. Uh, 
realize now that the speed limiter, when they when they check you, if they uh, if they find out that you've got a disengaged speed limiter, that would be a violation exceeding exceeding the speed limit. Whatever that might be would yet be a different. One. So for so for example, you know I think that uh, you know there'll be some probably some. Uh, new rules written about the fact that you've got to have uh, a a working uh, uh, speed limiter, and if you disabled it, uh, uh, that would be the uh, uh, the equivalent of the disabling an ELD. Uh, so uh, you know, I think there there may be slightly different variations from what is the speed limit, and is your log correct? Whether or not you've got a, a, a working speed limiter and a working ELD, does that make sense? Yeah, it does. The other question I have is, is you know, my home state of Kansas has no love for the current administration, and they will do anything and vote against anything that comes out of Washington strictly on principle. If you know, what if a bunch of states just decide we're not going to mess with this, we're not going to enforce it, we're not even going to, we're going to publicize basically that it's that it's not going to be enforced. Uh, what kind of anarchy are we going to try to set up? And I really think the federal government is, and this is my own opinion, they're opening up a can of worms that they can't close once they open it. I really think they're, you know, this is personal uh it's a payback for certain groups for election favors, and and I, I personally see no safety in it. A split speed limit, and the and you know states are continually raising their speed limits. More and more states are going to seventy-five or eighty instead of sixty-five, like they had been. And you know it's going to make a differential on the road that is going to make it less safe instead of more safe. Uh, I I certainly agree. Uh, with your view of the value of the speed limiter, uh, I think to uh, disable a truck from being able to speed up when necessary, if it says right lane close ahead and you're stacked wall to wall, uh, you may very well need to be able to goose it up over the speed limiter to ease into the left-hand lane, and otherwise you, uh, you may be dead in the water. Uh, I think that it's uh, a, a poorly devised idea that by having a speed limiter and having uh, uh, taking away from the truck driver uh, the the tool to be able to uh, to speed up when necessary, you're going to uh, affirmatively affect safety. Uh, I think well, that there have been speed limiters in Canada for a while, and I gather that. Uh, uh, there hasn't been a whole lot of uh, uh, pushback uh, uh, in the Canadian market to, to vindicate what we're talking about uh, with respect to the states' rights issue. You know, it's just, it, 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 in a way, it's kind of like what we're seeing with the uh, Affordable Care Act or Obamacare. That is, uh, uh, although the government's broke, they've always got enough money to uh, tell the states that, look, uh, if you want our support, you'll play the game with our ball. And that's the way it is with the uh, with any of the enforcement of any of the safety rules. 
uh, and as I mentioned earlier, this uh, 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 mix-out money. Uh, the whole, uh, what they call CVSA, do you know what the term CVSA uh, means, Bruce? Yeah, Commercial Vehicle Safety Alliance. Yeah, okay, well, absolutely right. The, uh, the CVSA is uh, uh, an opportunity, I think, twice a year for all of the... Uh, 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 state uh, uh, safety barons to gather together to set certain policy and certain guidelines and as part of the federal state, uh, state alliance uh, they, they really write and enforce uh, to try to enforce uniform rules and you know if you, if you talk to uh, uh, the state enforcement officials you'll find that a lot of what the feds want to put on them, they don't really like. For example, the CVSA came down and uh, uh, sent a letter to uh, Secretary Fox joining with all of us motor carrier broker types saying uh, SMS methodology doesn't work, take it down. So uh, they are not necessarily uh, uh, bamboozled by what the... Uh, the agency wants to do are necessarily in, in favor of it. But, uh, you know, they're monitored to be, be sure that they're enforcing the federal standard. And there's always the, uh, you know, the coercion of, listen, you've got to be a team player. And ultimately, the, the ability to cut funding that uh, requires them to, uh, uh, to enforce the federal law. And, you know, it's looked at. Uh, and that's one of the things that they have that is a problem with the safety system. Certain states tend to enforce uh, uh, certain issues that others don't. So there's no uniformity in enforcement, and that's, that's what really uh, is one of the major chinks in the whole, the whole system. Uh, you know, for example, I think we know uh, there are five states that write 43% of the speeding tickets. So, uh, you know, whatever your speed limit is, it's not enforced equitably by the states. Uh, you know, I think Texas is, uh, is real hyper on, uh, uh, on uh, maybe vehicle maintenance. And, you know, you hear that Louisiana's, uh, uh, you know, is, is, is out trying to catch seatbelts. So, you know, you've got 50 different states, and they all probably have their own enforcement profile. Uh, in terms, not just as a matter of, you know, the state legislator covering, but the uh, the enforcement agenda of, uh, of of the state uh, safety department. So they're not all the same. So, uh, you know, this speed limiter thing may get passed, and it may very well be that everybody knows that, uh, you know, going through Maryland, they're looking for... Uh, uh, you're going over, you know, 68, and that they're certainly going to write you up not only for a speeding ticket, but also check out your speed limiter. And in Montana, they ain't going to care. Yeah. Uh, so, uh, you know, I, I don't think that just because the speed limiter law comes in, that it'll be enforced everywhere. And, you know... I, I'm, I don't know whether or not... Uh, it's going to be an easy fix to, you know, for, for folks to say, well, you know, I can trip a switch and it'll work in Maryland or, or just drive slowly in Maryland or what. But, uh, uh, 
uh, you're talking about enforcement anomalies. There are already enforcement anomalies. I'm sure when this comes in, there, there will be a soon, but uh, I imagine that they will train their, uh, their little uh, uh, training sessions, all of their mid-set qualified investigators, how to, to, to check your unit to be sure you've got an operable uh, uh, speed limiter, and if you don't, uh, I imagine it'll be a, a major point violation. Right, and, and just... Um want to uh, jump in real quickly. Got a question that somebody else had a question coming up, uh, but I know that earlier um, in Canada, I remember some people talking about some issues where the mounted Canadian, uh, they were checking them at the borders there with their speed limiters, and they plugged into an individual's truck, and it caused some malfunctions with the, uh, with the truck. And then, okay, now if that happens, then who's responsible uh, for fixing the truck to make sure the truck gets back right? <laughs> that opens up a whole other can of worms as well. Well, yeah, it will. But, you know, remember this. The government has sovereign immunity and they're broke. So, you know, if the same thing happened, uh, if uh, you know, if somebody else was fooling with the truck and through their negligence screwed it up, you'd have a clean cause of action against them uh, trying to get it out of the government's not quite so easy. Yeah, yeah. Well, Bruce, does that wrap you up for the night, buddy? Yeah, pretty much. I was just going to say that you know, I had the misfortune a couple of weeks ago being in Michigan where they have like a 60-mile-an-hour speed limit for trucks and 70 for cars, and I can't believe how many times cars would either almost rear-end me or cut in front of traffic going, you know, 68, 70, and to try to get around me doing 75 or 80. And, you know, my personal opinion is is that all traffic needs to move at the same speed and be allowed to move at the same speed because interaction changing lanes is way more dangerous than a truck going three, four, five mile an hour faster than what some person thinks is sane or sensible or just, you know, their opinion. So I'll leave it at that. Uh, and I'll say amen to you, Bruce. I agree. Uh, thanks, Rico. Thanks. All right. Thanks, Eaton. Thank you, Bruce. Appreciate you, appreciate you calling in and, and asking your question tonight. Let's move on. We got Ryan has a question. Says, who who pays? Let's get Ryan on board. Let's find out what's right, what, what Ryan's question is. Ryan, you're on live with Rico and uh, Hank Seaton. Go ahead and ask your question. Yeah, I just had a question. Who's supposed to pay for this device? <laughs> and, and why... <laughs> Why can't you use the ECM? All trucks have an ECM that could be limited. Uh, I don't have uh, I don't have any answer to uh, what uh, uh, what will be the mechanism for the speed limiter, or what the cost is, or whether there is a a, a simpler or easy way to uh, to do it off of the ECM. Uh, there will be the speed limiter rule, and there will be a rulemaking, and there will be an opportunity to for notice and comment. Uh, and uh, even though Congress says you've got to come down with a speed limiter rule, uh, the rule will still have to do a cost-benefit analysis uh, and will still have to uh, ultimately demonstrate that there is a safety benefit that's quantifiable. So all of that uh, isn't to be 
isn't to be prejudged. Uh, and there will be an opportunity for folks to look at it, to comment. Uh, uh, one would hope that a voice of reason uh, would have, uh, uh, you know, some effect. Uh, as a practical matter, when you've got Congress telling the agency to come down with the rule, when you've got uh, the uh, the powerful uh, lobbying force of public citizen and, uh, uh, and and the pro labor folks advocating it, and the large carriers uh, uh, saying that in the spirit of uniformity and reducing uh, wrecks, uh, they are voluntarily putting it on their trucks. It leaves uh, it as more of a political issue than it does rationale prevailing. Uh, clearly, we'll, uh, groups of small carriers will be making comments. You'll have an opportunity to uh, uh, voice your opinion, but whether it'll be heard, I think, remains to be seen. This is uh, somewhat analogous, I think, to uh, the hours of service that we're now living with, uh, uh, back when this went in, in 2003, uh, many of us uh, did our damnedest to explain uh, that, uh, you know, there was a value in a nap, the split sleeper birth uh, uh, was uh, uh, not a way to encourage drivers to drive tired, but it was, in fact, uh, uh, the most effective, productive, and restful way to allow a driver to uh, judge his own body clock and, 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 and traffic conditions, and nobody paid any attention to it. Uh, so I, I, I fear that the, the speed limiter may yet be uh, another one of, of those issues because I think it seems like a lot of people's minds uh, are, are made up on it. Uh, well, the, the yeah. point you said is if safety, they're going to check safety. But what happens when it starts hitting profits? Are they going to start giving exemptions to FedEx, UPS, and all the overnight carriers that have to get packages delivered for next day delivery? Are they going to get exemptions? Or is it just going to be, well, you're, you cost you profit, so we're going to give you an exemption? No, I, I don't think it'll be that ham-fisted. I don't think... Uh, causing, uh, you know, profitability or uh, need of speed of delivery uh, will be the issue. Uh, what we're seeing now uh, with some of the exemptions from the meal breaks and things such as that uh, are going to ag haulers. You know, you'll see people uh, come in and say, listen, I got, uh, I got a load of livestock and, uh, you know, I can, I can make it. I can make a good case for the fact that I shouldn't have to take a meal break or something. And so there are always, you know, exemptions that uh, are uh, uh, not just to uh, help, uh, uh, you know, a particular company make more profit, but are justified. I mean, you know, they'll, they'll suspend some of this stuff if they have a Katrina uh, or, 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 or something else so that it's just not completely arbitrary, but usually there's there's some uh, uh, emergency situation or something about the nature of, of, of the product that has to has to justify the exemption. Uh, you know, that's kind of like uh, 
you know, people come in and ask for, for waivers, uh, diabetic waivers or things like that. And there is a process in the rules for the agency to be able to spend aspects of, uh, of, of a rule, uh, uh, when, uh, you know, uh, there's a, a public need, uh, they have that discretion. Uh, but I, I think that to, to answer your question, UPS and FedEx are going to have to play by the same hours of service rules that, uh, uh, that the small guys do. Uh, unfortunately, uh, as we know, uh, large carriers that can do kind of a pony express and and and, and relay and uncouple drivers from trucks and uh, use multiple terminals uh, can probably respond to restricted hours of service and, and those kinds of things better than a, an owner operator who uh, wants to get miles and get home. Cool deal. All righty, that's all I needed. All right, oh, well, we appreciate it. And hi, Rico, by the way. Uh, I forgot to leave you out, you know. Well, we, we appreciate it, Ryan. Thanks for calling in, and thanks for actually getting your question in to Mr. Seaton. All right, thank you. All right, Hank, got a couple. We got a few minutes. Uh, got a couple people that uh, had some questions but dropped off. Just want to remind everybody on the line, Hank is here with us. If you got a question, any transportation law question, go ahead and press number one. That gets you in the queue and we can get you on board to speak directly to Mr. Seaton. Um, but I got this question that popped up uh, the other day here, Hank, talks about, actually someone wants to know uh, the procedure about setting up an LLC, and does that does an LLC protect you, separate you from liability, from uh, separate your trucking company liability from your personal liability? Yes, uh, particularly if, if you are an, an owner operator so that you have got uh, assets or you're in a trade or business uh, for liability purposes, uh, uh, the best advice I could give was to consider uh, either incorporating or establishing what they call an LLC. Uh, an LLC is uh, a simplified corporation. Um, most states have uh, uh, recognized it now as a way to set up what really is a fictitious person. So I could have a seat and trucking LLC and it would be recognized as uh, uh, an entity that could enter contracts, that could own equipment. Uh, I could uh, uh, put my truck through it. I could get my paycheck. Uh, and the corporate veil or the veil of the LLC would uh, uh, protect those assets. Uh, anybody who is operating as uh, uh, Hank Seaton doing business as Seaton Trucking, uh, if he's involved in an accident uh, or uh, uh, is uh, the company's accused of negligence, uh, is subject to personal liability. Uh, you know, maybe your farm, maybe your house is protected and you're uh, because you got joined several with, with your wife, but there's just no sense at putting at risk uh, investments and uh, assets beyond the trucking company. So for that reason, the LLC is certainly one way to do it. You can get the same uh, tax advantage 
with what's called a sub-S corporation. Uh, in setting one up, uh, you need to consult uh, a uh, an accountant. It does mean that there is one more tax return uh, to be filed because uh, uh, currently if you're a proprietor, you're, you're keeping, uh, um, well, at the end of the year, you're filing on your tax returns, your gross revenue, and you're deducting from your expenses as an individual. With an LLC or a sub-S, uh, you uh, prepare that kind of return for the LLC of the corporation and then attach that to your personal return and pay only on the net after expenses. Now, I got I, I can't help but actually to dig a little further on that one because I, I've, I've heard of some cases where the corporate veil has been pierced when you have an LLC, um, especially if you're a one-truck operator and you, and you are personally involved in the accident where they will sue you, try to sue you uh, personally as well. Well, yeah, uh, there's, the there's, there's certainly nothing, there's certainly nothing that keeps them from suing you personally for your own negligence. Uh, uh, but usually it stops, it stops at the court, it, it, it stops at the corporation. So for, it, it, I guess it'd be maybe more for commercial uh, value. Let's say that you, let's say that I'm a trucking company and I'm involved in a cargo plane uh, and, you know, uh, all of a sudden, a, a load of Nikes was stolen, and they're worth half a million dollars. And uh, the the broker wants to come after uh, me. Well, if I'm Hank Seaton doing business as Seaton Trucking, no, he gets a judgment against me personally. Uh, if if it otherwise is, it's uh, it's an LLC. Uh, the most he gets is a judgment against the corporation. Well, that's the, or the LLC, because that's the way the uh, Carmack liability uh, works. The liability ends with the corporation. And you know, similarly, if there's a if there if there's a if there's a contract dispute, or, or uh, uh, let's say that uh, you know my my truck is uh, my truck is 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 totaled. Uh, it's uh, there's a tow bill, and it's a and it's an $80,000 tow bill, God forbid, and I want to walk away from the LLC and the liability of the tow man. If it's uh, uh, in an LLC, that's fine. If it's individually, you can chase it. So, uh, you know, there's all kinds of issues other than the accident in which uh, the corporate veil is the, is the only way to go. I mean, look at it this way. Um, we got a guy running for president named Donald Trump, and Mr. Trump says he's the richest man in the, in the country. But do you know how many times he's set up a a Trump something or another, uh, and made investments and declared bankruptcy on it? Well, three or four times. Right. Uh, it's just right. uh, uh, it, it's just uh, uh, the the way that uh, that that people in industry protect their investments against, uh, 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 you know, additional funds. Now, trying to suggest to anyone on the line that uh, uh, ethically and morally you should try 
to avoid your liabilities and set up a you know fictitious barrier to to paying your just debts. I'm not saying that at all, but you know I am saying that trucking is a uh, is a high risk business uh, in which the tax code allows you to uh, uh, to to limit your liability and not be all in. Uh, with, uh, you know, your granddaddy's inheritance if you're going to start a trucking company uh, for fear that, uh, you know, uh, something untoward might happen. Uh, well, I mean, tonight's show is a perfect example. Tonight's show is a perfect example of, of the minefield of the regulations and not, a, you know, the, the regulatory regula- regulations that the uh, trucking industry we are faced with and also the... Um, just the legal ramifications as, as a whole as the running of business. I mean, there, there's a whole minefield out there that we have to na- that navigate and, you know, never mind just trying to run a, run a, a, a profitable business, but you also have to uh, keep in mind all the different regulations uh, dealing with the federal government and, and the different fines that may be levied if you are a motor carrier and, you know, just have your own authority, but, you know, you are a motor carrier and some of the fines and everything that, that are, they are starting to levy towards motor carriers uh, with some of the different things that they may find you in violation of can can put you on one knee. I mean, put you out of business almost, you know, overnight if you're not careful. So I think it's wise to try to help, uh, you know, try to try to at least limit some of your uh, exposure out there. And if, and if an LLC can help do that, then I think, you know, uh, definitely would be wise to do it. But like you said earlier, I think it's also a smart move to, Consult with your CPA to find out which designation to use when creating your LLC. Or yeah, your and you know it's 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 not a cumbersome thing. Uh, uh, I had a, a fellow call me uh, uh, today, and he's uh, he wants to be a commission salesman, and you know he wants to uh, uh, you know on a part time basis, uh, uh, you know make five or ten percent by just acting as a sales rep. And he says, uh, you know, I've been told I need to set up an LLC uh, to do this. Do you think I should? And I told him, I said, well, you know, in in that business, people don't go through the corporate formality. If all you're going to do is, uh, uh, you know, is act act as a salesman, you're probably not going to be in a in a business with a whole lot of personal liability or exposure, you might want to see how it goes for a while before you go to the, you know, the problem of consulting a lawyer and getting a, a, you know, a tax ID number and doing all those kinds of things with it. And that's really just based upon the fact that, you know, the, the risk of, uh, that he would have, uh, and the, the, the investment and the exposure just, to be a, a, a part-time commission salesman uh, probably doesn't justify it. But trucking is an entirely different thing, and it's just uh, they, like you say, there are too many, too many regulations, too many opportunities to, to get blindsided. Uh, uh, you're talking about uh, uh, a risk-limiting device, and it's, uh, I think. Uh, any lawyer who understands trucking or any accountant will tell you that the corporation is the best way to go, or an LLC. Okay, Hank. Well, we got we get ready to wrap. Look, we're getting close to uh, close to time to wrapping up. 
want to give uh use this bit a little bit of time to uh, maybe give you an opportunity to talk to us a little bit more about the uh the book protected motor carriers interest in contract oh, well, thank you for you that. Uh, you'll be happy you'll be ha- uh, uh, I'm happy to announce that uh, uh, I've gotten through the the sixteenth chapter of the new book and that's the last one so now maybe I've got the eighty twenty of proofreading it and getting it to the press but I uh, you know, I, I think the the new the new book, uh, uh, which hopefully will be out in a couple of months, is uh, going to be about twice the size of uh, protecting motor carrier interests and contracts. It's going to go into uh, a good bit more detail on uh, uh, what to watch for in in cargo claims. Uh, uh, there'll be extended. Uh, uh, Things dealing with the the kinds of things we talked about here tonight, safety regulations, uh, uh, owner operator uh, contracts, uh, uh, credit and collection uh, of uh, factoring agreements. So uh, hopefully it'll be. Uh, uh, I promise it's going to be the last book I write, uh, but hopefully it'll it'll, it'll fill a niche uh, there. Uh, as a, as I think everybody can see, it's a brave new world in terms of trucking, and uh, you know people are going to going to have to have uh, a resource, and hopefully, hopefully this will fill the bill in that regard. So, uh, if anybody uh, doesn't have protecting motor carrier interest in contracts, it's still available through my website online, and uh, you know the, the new book should be out in the next couple of months. And that website is for every, for anybody listening. That's www.transportationlaw.net. Again, www.transportationlaw.net. Uh, you can go to Mr. Seaton's site. It's a wealth of information on that site. And if you don't have uh, protected motor carriers' interest in contracts, uh, just a brief, um, maybe a Cliff Notes version of some of the things that's contained in there. Uh, Hank goes into uh, what I believe is pretty good detail. Uh, exposing some of the things within the bill of first of all the bill of lading. Uh, he talks about uh, the different things as far as is concerned with the uh, factoring companies. Also with understanding. Um, ooh, I'm, 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 I got a million things. Million one things going through my mind because uh, I don't have the book right directly in front of me. But I'm. But I'm yeah, well, we, hang, we go into. Yeah, we go. We go into. Uh, one thing that I think is particularly important if anybody on the line, uh, is running a small trucking company is we go into what kinds of insurance you need, particularly the, uh, uh, the loopholes in a lot of cargo policies. You may think you're insured and may not be. So there's a section on that. There's a section on, as you mentioned, independent contractors. There's a section on factoring <coughs> and, uh, things to look for in uh, in broker and uh, carrier agreements that you're asked to sign. Right. Kind of a dirty dozen, uh, 12 provisions that uh, you need to watch for that, uh, you know, can come back to really hurt you if you don't modify. So, you know, it, it's kind of an introductory uh, course that might be called Transportation 101 for the small carrier. But in any event... Uh, you know, I, uh, probably probably enough about that. It's been around, and if you're interested, uh, jump on my website and, and, and take a look. Yeah, I, I encourage anybody if you if you 
running a small trucking company, you definitely this is a must have for your library. And I can't wait till the the, the new the new book does uh, finally hit stands. Uh, I, I definitely. Do you have a wait list for that one already, or, or, or are you still? Uh, no, but if anybody, if anybody and everything. Wants, to send, wants to send me their uh, their name and email address, I'll, I'll send them an alert when it does get published. Yeah, I, I want to go on pre order for that one. I, <laughs> I, I definitely want to have that one. Um, so, so Miss Seaton, I appreciate uh, trying to see if we had any more questions coming back in, but we had we had about seven or eight questions, but. After we got through the first couple of few ones, there seemed like they all dropped off. Not sure if they were all in the same vein or along the same lines or not. Um, real briefly, if you could maybe touch on before we were just closing out, we got a, we got about five minutes left in the show. Just closing out, somebody asked a question about the uh, pros and cons about lease purchasing. About, about the, the, they can't. Well, in a nutshell, they don't have a. I told them that if they can't get a copy of the lease purchase agreement before they uh, sign on with the company, that they probably should run in the other direction. If they can't get a copy of the contract for their review before they actually sign it. Um, any, anything that you may want to add to that? Well, lease purchase is, uh, in many states, it's becoming a, a, a real problematic Thing to, uh, to enter a lease purchase with a motor carrier uh, uh, because of excessive controls. Uh, I very much think that if you're going to enter a lease purchase, you need to sit down and pour over not just the lease agreement, because that's governed by the Truth in Leasing Regulations, and it's got to have about 32 things that are for your protection, and those things are all covered in the book pretty well. But the purchase agreement, uh, you know, has oftentimes got a lot of, uh, of legalese in it that uh, can come back to haunt you. Uh, you got to be sure that uh, it's uh, you're ultimately going to get title to the equipment, and that what you're what you're paying uh, is going to ultimately build some equity for you. Uh, you know, if you're buying an older piece of equipment. Uh, the problem that I see is people don't uh, have a uh, guaranteed maintenance program. They get into it. Uh, uh, they have have a breakdown, a major overhaul uh, problem. They don't have the money to uh, uh, to fix it, and they have to uh, abandon the truck. Uh, it, it's uh, uh, with the increasing cost of new equipment the second generation when you're going to get it at the three to 400,000 mile uh, level uh, is uh, it's a more expensive truck now than it used to be. So obviously you got to be a businessman. You got to look at those payments. You got to have enough reserves to take care of the money and you need to know the reputation of the company you've got. I, I end up with a lot of uh, folks over the past few years who come to me and uh, they just signed a bad deal. They signed a bad deal with somebody that really uh, had no intention of ultimately giving them title to the truck. I think, as I mentioned before, uh, I represent some some folks that uh, basically have a birthday party for a guy when he uh, when he gets titled the truck because they want him to succeed. And I think the reputation of the carrier and 
and uh, the success stories that they've had with other people uh, is is a good way to uh, to check out who's involved. Uh, and of course, uh, you know, you, when you're buying used equipment, it sure helps if you can work on it uh, because if it breaks down in the middle of the desert and you've got to come up with the you know, ten grand to fix it. Uh, that's uh, uh, you know, you almost got to have a, your own maintenance reserve to do it. But uh, and, you know, the people that are on the phone are, are uh, have more practical experience in in running uh, uh, and operating trucks than I do. I uh, but uh, to say that uh, there are abuses with lease purchase agreements is is an understatement. All right, Hank. Well, I think that pretty much is going to wrap us up for this evening, this edition of Hanging with Hank. Uh, don't see any more questions coming down the pipe right now, so I would like to appreciate it and thank you for taking the time out of your busy schedule to come on and, and maybe help help some of us one-man army guys out here that are trying our best to make our way in this industry and giving us a little bit of advice and things to help navigate through this uh, minefield that we were talking about a little earlier. Uh, anything sure. that you would like to say in closing, I'm, anything I'm, as far as... Uh, you like to plug anything before we get to get out of here? No, no. I think I think we've about covered it all. Uh, I've enjoyed the show, and uh, good to talk to you, Rico. We'll talk next month. Yes, sir. It's always a pleasure, Hank. We appreciate you. And closing out here tonight, I'd be remiss in my duties if we did not thank uh, Mr. Kevin and Lisa Rutherford and the entire Less Truck team for providing for providing us with a platform to bring the show to you each and every Wednesday when we're available to do it. Um, so we want to definitely send kudos out to those guys. And also just a reminder, want to remind you of some of our co-hosts here on the uh, Audio Road Network. Mr. Kenny Long and his show, Trucking with Authority, comes on every Tuesday, same time, 7 p.m. So if you're interested in finding out anything about getting your own authority, uh, things of that nature, of running your, of building a small fleet, Please, by all means, check out Kenny Long's show every Tuesday at 7 p.m. And then we have Kim Cochran's uh, show, Destination Health, that comes on every Friday. Uh, Destination Health deals primarily with about trying to get healthy out here on the road, eating healthy, um, doing more exercise, getting more activity done. So de- definitely check out Kim Cochran's show, uh, Destination Health. And also, don't want to forget about... Um, Mike Beckett has his show on Sunday evenings, Rolling Rolling Toe. Want to check out Mike Beckett's show it's every Sunday. Check the uh, Let's Truck page for all the times and everything and the different calling numbers for each show. But just want to get your plug in for everybody and those those guys on those shows. We want to thank you guys again tonight for supporting Race and Lane's podcast. Appreciate it very much. We'll see you next week. This is Rico Muhammad coming to you live from Atlanta, Georgia, signing off, wishing everyone to be safe. God bless you and good night. Thanks for joining us on Rates and Lanes. If you like what you heard here, leave us a rating and review on iTunes or listen to our other shows at audioroad.letstruck.com. To get in touch with our tribe, call us at 855-800-FUEL. That's 855-800-3835. Thanks for joining us for the ride down the audio road.